0: Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9, question 26. Please join with me in prayer. Father, I come before thee now, and I ask, O God, thou great maker and sustainer of all things, Lord, that Thou would be pleased to make within us new faith, O Lord. Refresh us, Lord, as we meditate on these truths, O Lord. God, please help equip me to preach, to speak. Lord, help us all to hear with the ears of faith that which is true. May that which is untrue fall to the wayside, O Lord. God, may the hearing of Thy Word preached The hearing of this catechism question expounded, be in accordance with thy word. And as it is applied to the ears, Lord, please apply it to the heart. God, we need thee, especially at times like this, O Lord. To hear thy word preached is a great blessing. Lord, help us to relish in it, to glorify thee. Lord, as we meditate on the triune nature of who Thou art over the next few weeks, O Lord, help us to not try to parse out these truths, but to receive them, to accept them, to praise Thee for who Thou art, not try with our finite understanding to completely find out, for such a task, such an endeavor is futile, O God. God, we thank Thee again for Thy Son, Jesus, in whom is all of our hope, all of our rest. The entire church is founded upon His work and the work of Thy Spirit through us and in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord's Day 9, question 26. Let us read together, if you have it. Question 26 asks, What believest thou when thou sayest, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. And further, that he will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. For he is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing, being a faithful father. Dear congregation, as we continue on through the Heidelberg Catechism, let us keep in mind that it is not itself the word of God, but also to take advantage of what Our forefathers in the faith have written down what they have learned, for the Holy Spirit of God has been moving since the foundation of the church within his people and for his people's sake. Let us not then turn a deaf ear to what the great saints of old and of present with one another have learned by the teaching of the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and his providence over us and through us and in us. But we come now to another question that I think really highlights how beneficial and what is beneficial about the Heidelberg Catechism. Again, it goes back to that personal pronoun, I. What do I mean when I say I believe in God the Father? It goes back to that pastoral, experiential style of writing. And that's really where the Heidelberg Catechism shines, as well as its doctrinal richness, it's also devotionally rich, Let's look at four points this evening in question 26, Lord's Day 9. Number one, God the Father is the almighty creator, sustainer, and governor of all things. Number two, in Christ, God is our Father, is our Father. Number three, our Father causes all things to work for us. Number four, we ought to live for our Father's glory, therefore. So first, God the Father is the Almighty Creator. That's what they begin with. Quoting the Creed, which they laid out in Lord's Day 7, the Apostles' Creed, our catechism states that God is the Father Almighty and Maker of heaven and earth. And then it asks what we mean. What dost thou mean by this? What else do we mean when we proclaim and confess that we believe that God is the Father Almighty and Maker of heaven and earth? but then to assign several different titles to who he is, his being. Assigning several different titles to the first person and the Godhead. As we looked at last week, the Trinity, that this God, this one being is three persons in that one being. We're looking now, Trinitarianly, the Heidelberg is bringing us through each of those persons. So now it lays out a few different titles to this first person, the Father, We will take each title in turn. So the first title that was given this person is God. God. This is an absolute title for an indefinable mode of being in which God exists alone. He exists independently of all of his own creatures and even of his own offices and his own acts. God is God outside of his creatures themselves and even outside of his own relations to them, and actions for them, towards them. God remains God without him creating anything. God is a being of such worth, of such essence, that he exists and nothing else has to. His mode of being is pure being itself. His mode of being is pure being itself. He exists outside of being made to exist, unlike us. And he also exists without his existence being contingent upon any action of his own. We must come into being as humans. We must come into being. Yet God is being itself. We come into being, but God is being. He is existence. We have to breathe and to eat and to drink to maintain our being. Yet God's being exists exists without any needs we eat we drink we breathe we sleep there's all these necessities that we must do to maintain our being yet god's being exists without any needs at all this is what is meant by that very name which god reveals to moses when moses asked what name do i tell the people of israel when i've met with i've met with you and i go back to the israelites and say here's what this god says what name do i give them In Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14, we see this. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. I am hath sent me unto you. Excuse me. This name, I am that I am, or I am, is called the Tetragrammaton. Theologians call it that. It's because it's made up of th- or four letters without any vowels in between it. The Jews often didn't pronounce it at all. So there's lots of discussion about how to pronounce it. Some people say Yahweh. Some people say Jehovah. Other people say Adonai. When you're taking Hebrew and they're teaching you to read through the Hebrew Bible, when you come to the Tetragrammaton, you're supposed to say Adonai, which is what the Jews do, which just means Lord or Master, Ruler. But this name Jehovah... The Tetragrammaton, I am that I am, is made up of two different Hebrew words, both which mean to exist, to be. So it's just like their uh, version of our English to be, I am, I exist, he is, you will be, all of those are being verbs. And this name Jehovah, I am that I am, or I am, is made up of two of those Hebrew words, which mean to exist. So his name itself signifies his singular existence. His name itself signifies his singular existence. Jehovah is God, and he alone, and he outside of all other being, is true being. He is, because he is. As God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 5, I am Jehovah, and besides me there is none else. The second title we give to this person is Father. So first was God, now is Father. This is a relative title, meaning it demonstrates how God relates to his creatures, his relations to his creatures. He is the father of all being, because from him alone does anything have its existence. So he is father of all creation, in in a sense, because without him there would be no existence at all. Just as a child does not have any being outside of his father So too, nothing in creation exists without God as its Father. By this title, we see that God is the Father of all things. But he is specifically the Father of the second person within this triune Godhead, the Son. And also, he is specifically Father over all of his elect people. So we mean, when we say Father, we mean it in a multitude of ways. It applies to a multitude of things, just like God, the title God did as well. But specifically, he is Father to the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ, and also, in and through him, as our confession, or the catechism question said, to us as believers. He is our Father, his elect people. In Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul says, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So even right there, we see the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus, we are the family members within that as believers. He is our Father as well. We see that the first person of the triune God is Father of the second person of the triune God, namely Jesus Christ the Son. And He is also the Father of all of us who believe as well. God the Father is father of all people by and through his creating. So all people, period. Whether you believe or not, he is your father in that sense. Because he, he created them, he sustains them, and he governs them. But he is peculiarly or especially the father of all believers who are born again of his grace. So he's father in a specific and different way towards believers than he is towards non-believers, Now, the first person of the Trinity, the Father, being the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that does not in any way diminish or lessen or subordinate the second person of the Triune God, the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the Father. The first person is the Father. The second person is the Son. But that doesn't diminish in any way or subordinate the role of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to the first person of the Trinity, the Father. Why? Because there is, as we looked at last week, no difference in rank or order of being within the Godhead itself. There is no rank or order. However, and where people get confused, we do see there are different roles throughout the redemptive history that all three persons of the Trinity take on. The Father creates. The Father governs. The Father decrees. And then in, that that's in the redemptive history, and then in the redemptive history, the Son actually does the work as the mediator here on earth. That was the role he undertook in the covenant of redemption. And then the Holy Spirit applies it. So that's where people start to try to read into that, or maybe even too biblicismly, if that's a word, try to then just say that's what's happening. Well, we see that they're taking on these different roles, so therefore there is a subordination of sorts happening here. And that is not actually what the Scriptures teach. So we have to be careful when we're talking about this. The relationships between the three persons of the Godhead are relations which we cannot understand. So we don't need to then try to read into it too much and then end up with subordinationism or modalism, etc., any of the other Trinitarian errors. We cannot even begin to comprehend what these relationships are and how they work. We can only explain them in the way scripture has explained them to us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, It appears that the Son was from all eternity. It also appears that the Son was equal in glory, and that the Holy Spirit comes proceeding from both the Father and the Son, and that the Son is equal. We see all these things, so we need to just leave it where the Scriptures leave it and not try to add anything else in. The incomprehensible nature of God's revelation to us cannot be grasped by our finite minds when it comes to Many things, especially the triune nature of the Godhead and their interpersonal relationships. The third title given is Almighty. So we saw God, we saw Father, now we see this third title, which is Almighty. This title is characteristic, and it demonstrates to us God's power. So it's characteristic, demonstrates to us God's power. God could not be creator if he were not also powerful. If he were not also almighty, he could not then be created. And all almighty means is all-powerful. God's almightiness not only describes his ability to do anything, and a lot of people stop there, and oftentimes our minds, we stop there. He just has the power to do everything, anything. Anything you could even fathom, he can do. Yes, of course that's true, but it does not only describe his ability to do anything, but also his ability to do anything which he chooses to do. Which he chooses to do. Not simply just that he can do everything, but that he can do anything he wants to do. His power, God's power, is only limited by his will. He can do what pleases him to do. He can do anything he pleases to do. And he can prevent anything he pleases to prevent. And all for his own ends and his own glory. So his power goes beyond just the ability to do anything. There's lots of people in this room who can do many physical acts that you don't do. However, there are things that you cannot do. And you cannot do everything that you would do. Whereas God cannot only simply just do everything and anything. He actually does whatever he chooses to do. His power is not limited in anything other than but his decree, his will. God, as Father Almighty in Ephesians 1 Verse 11 states, worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And as the psalmist states in Psalm one fifteen three, our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. God is almighty, and therefore God does all things whatsoever he desireth, according to the effectual working of his power, Ephesians 3, 7. The fourth and last title we give God, this first person of the triune Godhead, is maker or creator. So the fourth title is maker or creator. Now, this title is what some theologians have called an executive title. Why? Because it represents God the Father as not merely possessing infinite power, but also as exerting it in the first great work of his will, namely the creation of all things, the creation of heaven and earth. Our catechism in this question answers, in this answer it states that, Quote, the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ made heaven and earth with all that is in them from nothing. So from nothing he created all things in his executive title as creator or maker. Now the title maker used here falls slightly short since we as people make things all the time. We make things every day. We make sandwiches, we make decisions, we make all sorts of things. But we make something from something else which already exists. God has made all that exists from nothing. Ex nihilo, as the ancients used to say, out of nothing. Even the term creator falls short. Probably the best way to express this is as originator. God is originator of all things. Everything has its origin from him, out of him, though that also falls short. Because we can't even begin to comprehend, again, the making of all things, including time, out of nothing. The Apostle puts it best in Hebrews 11.3. Again, when you can find scripture to speak on something, it's better just to leave it there. The Apostle puts it in Hebrews 11.3. Through faith, i.e. through the revelation reliance upon the divine testimony given to us. So through faith, through reliance upon what God has chosen to reveal to us in Scripture, he says, we understand that the worlds, or all creation, were framed by the word of God. Now that word of God, his very speech, it uses a different word than it tends to do throughout the Bible. We think of word, we think of the Greek word logos. Right here it's rimati, which means literally speech. So through his speech. So through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, or the speech of God, so that the things which are seen, visible, were not made of things which do appear, i.e., things which already exist. God made all things to exist by the word of his power, and we receive that by faith. And he made these things to exist out of nothing, not from things which do appear or already exist. And this was, for us as Christians, it seems a little bit easier to understand, but at that time especially with the epistle to the Hebrews, the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew people, the Israelitish people, the Jewish people, understood this concept of being created out of nothing much better than the Greeks and the Romans did. They believed that creation or existence, all things that we see, touch, uh, was eternal. Just like God was eternal. The gods were eternal, so too were all the things that exist were eternal. Whereas the Hebrews... And the Jews understood correctly, and much better than they did, that things were made from nothing. And this, in our Christian context, is a little bit easier for us to understand than it would have been for the Greek-thinking people. The scriptures bear testimony to the fact that God created all things through his speech out of nothing. In Genesis 1-1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The heavens, plural. What then are we to do? when our modern age states that the testimony of the Bible and the testimony of science are at odds with each other, either in terms of man's origin through evolution, etc., or the origins of the earth, meaning the, the age of the earth, the Big Bang. The Big Bang. What do we do when these come against us? When we hear from our modern age, from professors, scientists, people we meet on the street, family members, what have you, that say, oh, well, science has disproved the Bible. Or just simply that the Bible and science are at odds and we can reconcile this somehow. What are we to do? Well, it's good to keep in mind that when there seems to be a disagreement with science and with the testimony of the Scriptures in any aspect, it is helpful to keep in mind that if our knowledge of facts, whether they be natural or sacred, having to do with science or the Scriptures, if our knowledge of facts were truly sufficient, then science and God's revelation would be agreed in every aspect. It, has to come, it comes down to our inability to understand. We don't have perfect understanding. We don't have perfect knowledge of facts. <clears throat> as believers, we should never judge the Bible by scientific findings, per se, because those change, as we know, every, every few hundred years there's a completely different theory. Every 50 years, every 20 years, every 5 years. You know, people are, the date of the earth was set at 65 trillion years old or whatever, and now, you know, they're starting to move back. It's still an absurd amount of time, but it's, it's always changing. With every new theory comes some other conclusion. So we don't then bring the Bible to bear every five years, or with every new finding to science and try to see what's wrong with the Bible. As believers, we should never judge the Bible by scientific findings. We should never put Moses or the prophets, or the apostles on trial in the scientist's court. To do so would be to try God's truth by the deductions of philosophers. The Word of God should always be our final authority, especially if we're going to call ourselves Reformed Baptists, Sola Scriptura. The Word of God should always be our final authority. When science comes to better understandings, as we've seen time and time again, it always agrees with the testimony of the Scriptures. It's not necessarily that the facts they're bringing are wrong, it's that their interpretation and their methodology is wrong. When they get it right, it'll agree with the Scriptures, where the Scriptures speak about such things. So, in application, let other people argue about these things. Let other men argue about whatever they want to argue about. But as for you, dear believer, adhere to the Scriptures. Adhere to the Word of God. As the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 8, 20 to the law and to the testimony if they speak not according to this word it is because there is no light in them God is the maker the creator the originator of all things and this god has not only made himself known to sinners through the scriptures and other revelation throughout biblical history but has also saved sinners so he's not only made himself notice known to sinners but also saved sinners, making them his children, making them co-heirs with his own son, Jesus Christ. Now this is cause for great rejoicing. This is cause for great ponderings, not how to reconcile supposed scientific findings with what the scriptures say. And this brings us to point two. Second, in Christ, God is our Father. He's our Father. The Catechism states that God the Father Almighty For the sake of Christ his Son is my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt, but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. So not only is he creator and father, he is our Father for the sake of Christ his Son. So through our faith in Christ, by God's grace alone, The Father of Jesus Christ is made our Father. In our receiving of Jesus Christ, we are united with Him in God, to God as His children. We receive Christ our Lord as our Redeemer by faith, and then are received by God as His own children. In John 1, verses 12 and 13, it says, But as many as received him, Jesus, the word, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we receive Christ by grace through faith, we are united with him to God as his children. This is called the doctrine of adoption. Our confession states the doctrine of adoption this way in chapter 12. All those who are justified, God vouchsafed or promised, in and for the sake of his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of children of God. Have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father. Yet they are never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's how our confession defines the doctrine of adoption. It's interesting, Joel Beakey, a few years ago, realized that there was a... Staggering dearth of information. There was hardly anything he could find on the Puritans on adoption. He said, did the Puritans just not talk about the doctrine of adoption? Well, it's even interesting in our confession, chapter 12, that's it. That's their section on adoption is that one paragraph. It's a good paragraph. It's the same in the Savoy. It's the same in the Westminster. But is this all they said? Is this all the Puritan authors that Beeky was looking to said about it? We end up digging and digging and finding a lot of old, out-of-print books that you can't find that had 16th century bindings on them, etc. And they wrote a ton. And he, wrote, he, he boiled it all down into a little pamphlet. It's, uh, I think, 95 pages, The Puritans on Adoption. But what was shocking to him about it is this is one of the most important doctrines in Christianity. And it seems that it didn't get much light shed on it. What's so important about it is because in it is summated who we are in Christ. We are His children. We are united to Him. We have the spirit of adoption. Now, at the moment of salvation, we can't piecemeal salvation and what happens. Are you justified first? Do you repent first? Do you have faith first? Are you sanctified? That, that's where we get into a lot of trouble, a lot of heretical doctrine. In, the, in a moment of time, in the twinkling of an eye, we are saved. And at that very moment of salvation, we are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of Christ Christ, is applied to us, namely his satisfying the wrath of God against our sin and his attaining perfect righteousness on our behalf. That's given to us. It's applied to us. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a sign and seal of our glorification, our redemption. The process of sanctification is begun, and we are made children of the living God through the spirit of adoption. I mean, that, that's part and parcel of our Christian life. That is the essence of who we are as Christians, as a spirit of adoption. is the doctrine of adoption, that we are God's children. We're not just saved, put to the side. We are actually God's very children. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 15 through 17, famous portion of Scripture. Paul says, "...for ye have not received the spirit of bondage by the law, again to fear... But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. I mean, that's a key passage. That's a key passage. That's a deep spiritual truth. What is the practical results of this verse, of this truth? Assurance. Assurance. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, that we can cry out, Abba, Father, to God, not only as our Maker, our Ruler, our Governor, our Sustainer, but as our Father. Now, assurance should flow out of that. Namely, that we are provided for as God's children, who have been made co-heirs with Christ he just leave us there and that's it. <clears throat> God's owning of us as his children demonstrates his great love for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we, we, rebels, sinners, should be called the sons of God. If you know anything of your sin, if you know anything of the depths of your sin, if you've come to see how wicked you truly are, and then to hear that you are the son and daughter of God through Christ, that we should be, of all people, called the children of God, demonstrates God's love towards us. God does not call us servants as he does the angels. Nor does he call us enemies as we deserve. But God calls us his children. His children. Because of his great love wherewith he loved us, God hath quickened us together with Christ. so Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 say. And he's done this delivering us freely from our sins by his grace through faith in Christ's person and Christ's work. So God... Without whose will a sparrow even, the smallest, most pathetic and useless bird, does not fall to the ground without his will. This same God owns us as his own children. As his own children. Children who are begotten again, born again through his word of truth by the spirit of adoption who worketh within us. This should cause us, dear believers, to fear nothing. To fear nothing. Why? We should not fear of being in need. In need. Nor fear what some other man can do to us. Nor fear any of our circumstances which we are in. Though they be grievous. Why? Because God, in His fatherly, His tender, His loving care for us, His children, truly does care for us. He truly does love us. He truly does watch over our needs. He doesn't leave us destitute of our daily bread. But he provides for all our needs as children. That includes spiritual needs as well as physical needs. As well as physical needs. We do not need to be anxious, dear church. Rather, we ought in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God. That's Philippians 4.6. We must heed as believers, as children of God, Jesus Christ's words, through whom we are made children of God, so it's probably good to listen to what he has to say here. He says, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added you. Unto you, Now that doesn't mean you're just going to get anything you want. That doesn't mean you're not even going to have times of famine. Times of emptiness. Times where you are in need. But it means that God is working all of those things for your good. That he knows of them and he has not abandoned you. But is taking care of you through those things. Through your supposed lack. So do not worry about it for he cares even for the sparrow. So Jesus says, here's what you should care about. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And his righteousness. This is the practical outworking of knowing that we are God's children. Assurance. An assurance that when we rely entirely upon God, as the catechism said, when we rely entirely upon God as our Father, we will have no doubt but that he will provide for us, with all things necessary for our soul and our body. Third point. Third. Our Father causes, then, all things to work for us. So it talked about spiritual and physical needs. Now it's going on into circumstances. Our Father causes all things to work for us. The Catechism having established that believers are God's children for the sake of Jesus Christ, and that these children will be provided for by their Heavenly Father, then goes on to state, "Quote, And further, that He will make whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. For He is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing, being a faithful Father. So, dear believers, though this life is full of suffering. God works it all to our advantage. Though this life is full of suffering, full of hardships, full of inconveniences, yet God works it all to our advantage. Because God is our loving Father, as Christians, God causes all things to work together for our good. Romans eight twenty eight. Whatever evils that He does send upon us, He uses to either chasten or bless us. If you've ever been chastened, you know that that's actually a huge blessing. No one, no one understands, truly and deeply and experientially understands the strength and power that is available to you and I in Christ besides those who have had to bear heavy crosses. The Apostle Paul, placed under the cross of that thorny affliction in his side, cried out to the Lord that he might remove the thorn from his side. Three times he did this. Whatever God places upon us to cause us to realize our dependence, our need upon him, ought to be viewed as the greatest of all blessings. Even though in the moment, it is not fun. We see this played out time and time again in the saints and the scriptures. Paul did not realize that this weakness that was placed upon him by God's hand was actually the very catalyst to his strength until it happened. It caused Paul to realize the utter dependence he needed to have and did have upon God and that God was completely able to sustain him in all of his difficulties, all of his circumstances. You remember also Jacob. He did not realize his utter need and dependence upon God until God caused him to go halting upon his thigh into the arms of his avenging brother Esau. He now could not run, and he could not fight, for his hip was injured. He had to be completely at the mercy of the Lord. And if you read his prayer in that time, he gives himself over to God and says, you deal with this. My brother Esau is coming. And God worked it for his good. Gave him a chance to give, to restore the blessing he stole from Esau. It's an amazing passage. David did not realize his dependence upon God until the kingdom was stripped from him. There's many psalms from that time that really reveal that. Even Job, faithful Job, did not realize truly the dependence he needed to have upon God until all of his possessions were turned to dust, including his own children. Those things that cause us to long after God are our best blessings in this life. They will cause us to know experientially and not just intellectually what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, when I am weak, then am I strong." That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. It wasn't until God told him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. It wasn't until that point that Paul was able to embrace his sufferings and weakness as his true blessings and his true strength. And sometimes these are very devastating events in our lives. Other times they're more lesser. Either way, when God shows us just how much we need to depend on on Him, that's when we should praise Him, bless Him, thank Him, and realize that this is the greatest gift put before us. None but those who are thirsty know what it is to have their thirst quenched. So also, none but they who thirst after God know what it is to be filled by Him. The psalmist said something similar to this in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, heart meaning the deer, the young doe, as the deer panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? An animalistic, panting, longing after water, if you ever seen a dog outside in the heat playing and it comes in and just lapping it up. Or if you've ever been to the point where you're actually concerned about dehydration here in the summer in Arizona. You know what it is to have that physical thirst. That physical longing to have your thirst quenched. This is what the psalmist was saying about God. The psalmist is David as he's writing this. He was actually fleeing from Absalom's son kingdom had ripped from him. He was unable to go to the public worship with the people of God. He was saying, my soul, my heart is panting, is longing after God. So, so my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. Those are difficult times. But sometimes I look back and I long for those times again. Not for the circumstances, of course, but for that feeling of dependence of need that i must have god if you do not show up i will die you ever been at that point you know what a blessing it is and what was david's comfort in all of this as he he prayed this if you read the rest of the psalm the other eight verses he goes on and on about how he's cut off from the people of god That he, his tears have been his drink what was his solution How did he quench this thirst? He commanded himself, in verse 11 of Psalm 42, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He preaches a sermon to himself. And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. So so soon and so often, we get to a place that's similar in dependence, similar where we realize our need. Maybe we hear a sermon. Maybe we read a devotion. Maybe we have some sort of circumstance play out in our life where we go, wow, I really need to seek the Lord. I need the Lord's favor, the Lord's blessing. I need him to touch me. that I might know he's there. I need his fatherly hand of comfort upon me. I need his leading and his guidance. And then we distract ourselves with something else. We distract ourselves with something else. Something else. Do not do this. Rather, preach to yourself, hope thou in God. Go to God and find your thirst quenched. Thus, in all these things that we suffer, that we endure, these things that God places upon us in His hand of providence, we ought to know that they are for our good. And thus, we ought even to reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's Romans eight, eighteen. If we keep things in perspective, if we keep our eyes focused on Christ. Our God, then we're able to see that whatever I endure here, I know that my Father's hand is upon me and leading me, and He will get me through this. For when I am weak, then I am strong, and His power is made perfect in my weakness. Fourth, we ought then to live for our Father's glory. Because God is our loving Father who is almighty. And because He has caused us to become His children through the work of Jesus Christ, His Son, which is applied to us by the Holy Spirit, we ought then to live in grateful obedience to Him, not for ourselves. Not for ourselves. And it's when you have this paradigm shift, this perspective change, how you view the world, how you view your life, that's when you realize that there's something greater than what I could see. You set your eyes on the things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen. You begin to seek after God and desire to live after Him and His will. Let us heed the Apostles' words that we be heavenly-minded, caring for the things of Christ more than the things of earth, which in turn helps us steward the things of earth properly. If you go to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, we see what the Apostle Paul says about this very thing. He says to us who be children of God, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. Which is similar to Philippians one twenty one, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil conspicuousness, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. So we are to put off living in the flesh. Put off living in the flesh. And then in verse 10 he says, And having put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him, we are to put off the old man, put on the new man. And the only way we can do this is with a power that is not our own, namely from God, by the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And how we access this power, how we come to God for this power, is by understanding that we are his children. Understand that we are his children, that we depend upon him, that we need him. And that we can come to Him boldly with assurance that He'll hear us and care for our needs. Therefore, dear Church, keep the truths that are found in these scriptures and in this passage of Lord's Day 9, question 26, in your mind, as well as Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1, where we once again see, What is thy only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that that without the will of my heavenly Father, there he is right there, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Dear church, set our, let us set our eyes on Christ, where our power is, where our life is, knowing that in and through Him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who has brought us once again to life, God, the Maker of all things, God Almighty, the Father of all things, is our Father and not just the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we be just servants set aside. No, we are brought in as his children. We can cry out to him, the spirit interceding for us with groans that cannot be uttered or understood. Therefore, we have all reason to hope in God, all reason to come to him, all boldness to approach him as a perfect, good, loving, and caring father. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy grace, thy mercy, for we... Thank thee that thou art truly our Father. Help us to see that. Help us to believe it. Help us to come to thee as thou hast revealed thyself to us as Father. By the power of thy Holy Spirit, let us live for thee. Grateful for what thou hast done in thy Son, Jesus Christ, that we are made co-heirs with thee. O Jesus, lead us and guide us, O Lord, in our daily Battles, our daily victories, help us to ascribe all victory to thy glory, to thy name, and not to ours. Help us to find where we are weak in our life, to glory in it, to embrace it, looking to thee for our power, our strength, our ability. We love thee, we praise thee, ask God that thou would bless this preaching to our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now st-